This podcast contains graphic content and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and Merlot. We changed the name of this podcast to whenever we have time, true crime. Uh, literally. <laughs> that's that's just about where we're at right now. I mean, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. This whole summer has just been a whirlwind. A schedule? D- wouldn't know her. Don't know her. Yeah. Wouldn't know what a schedule Never was. Never met her. Nope. Heard of her. Yeah. Don't know her personally, though. Yeah. Heard, heard she's nice to have right. around, but no. In the past couple of weeks, um, let's see. Lucas went to Memphis um, and was there for a few days, went to St. Jude. Katie had to unfortunately put her dog down, Mm -hmm. Duke. Then Lucas and Mikey were stuck in Memphis. In Memphis, they were, the flights were getting postponed and pushed back, and they were there for longer than they intended to be. They were supposed to be. Yeah. We attempted to record this episode one time, realized that when we went to play it back that my mic had not been working the entire time and it's my episode so you just have katie inserting these really weird random random stuff thoughts and statements about things i'm like oh yeah that's some bullshit radio silence before and after that (laughs) so we were like and we attempted to do this when mikey wasn't here you know when he was in memphis and i don't know why we chose that day anyway because we had both like of course kayla went with me because if she would not i would have had to be alone to put the dog down which would have really sucked so we had both just gotten back to her house after Mm -hmm. putting the dog down and then within two hours she was sending her husband and her child off to saint jude which is always a scary time and I don't know why we decided it was a good day to try to record after all the emotional things that we had gone through that day. I don't, yeah. I don't know. We were like, you know what? what we were thinking. You know what's going to make us feel better? Murder. <laughs> and it would have. Yeah, had. And it, it was a nice little therapeutic recording. And then we get out there and half of it doesn't exist. So, yeah. <laughs> so. there was actually no murder. It was just me making comments on Kayla's episode. <laughs> So, it was kind of funny to listen back to, but when I when we went back, Kayla was like getting a drink or going to the bathroom or something, and I had just like played it back myself. And I'm looking at Kayla's like mic line, and there's no like spikes in her vocals whatsoever. And I and I come back downstairs, and she's like, "Houston, we have a problem. Like, um, uh, it wasn't recording you at all." <laughs> and I was like, like, "We're done. We're done for we're today. Just watch we're done." Movies for yeah. the rest of the day. This is what we should have done in the first place. I don't know why. Yeah. So then it took me a while to get Mikey home and then Mikey and Lucas home. And then once we did, you know, it was just 
we're finally here. We're finally here to do this yeah. episode. So and it's going to come out on a Tuesday when it's supposed to. <laughs> yes. Um, so if you've been waiting on an episode, I apologize. I feel like we do this all the time, but I, I apologize. It's really just been like this summer. It really, it this really summer has, has been. just been yeah. a lot. Yeah. Katie's going to be moving into a new apartment. And, and on Wednesday. Yeah. So I'm trying to get like a moving company set up and mm-hmm. it's a lot. spending all the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just got a lot of shit going on. We do. But now we're going to get into our episode. And and we do have a special announcement at the end. It's true crime related with Kayla's family, actually. So stay yes, tuned I have, for I that. Have, it's very important. Yes, I have something to um, talk about towards the end of this episode. So stay please stay tuned for that. Um, it's very, very important. You know, you guys can help. So, yeah, we'll just get into it. I'm doing my first serial killer episode. I was very intimidated. You have done a couple of them. Yeah. And I knew, like, it was going to have, I was going to have to do one eventually. And it's not like I don't like to talk about serial killers or that I, It's just you know. where the victim count is mm-hmm. so high, it is a lot to cover. Because yeah. I know you and I both try to focus on the victims and, like, you know, serial killers that have more than five victims. It's like. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't, though. But the reason I picked this one was simply because of my husband, because of Mikey, because he me- he never, he hardly ever suggests a case to us. Mm-hmm. Um, true crime is, you know, Mikey likes the technical end of everything, um, but the substance, he's, you know, that's Katie and, and my thing. Yeah. And so when he suggested an episode to me, I was like, well, I got to do it, you know? And so, then she texted me. She was like, guess who gave me this idea? And I was like, who? And I'm thinking, like, one of her nieces. Or her sisters or something. Mm-hmm. She's like, Mikey. And I was like, okay. Okay. So I'm doing the weepy voice killer. <laughs> That's exactly right. He gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, well. Okay. So it's New Year's Eve, 1980, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And police receive a phone call from someone who sounds frightened and worried. Yes, please. This is an emergency. Please send a squad to test on the road. Uh, Malmberg Manufacturing Company, Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? Just hurry. There's a, she's laid on the ground in the back by the, by the railroad tracks, by the edge What's the address? I don't know. Who are you? The caller is talking about 20-year-old college student, Karen Potak. When emergency personnel arrived, Karen was lying on a snowbank completely naked and bleeding from her head. Karen had been out that night with her sisters. They had been to a New Year's Eve party together, and Karen decided to walk home alone. Now, I'm just going to insert this here. Girls, don't go home alone. Mm -mm. Don't go home with someone you just met. If you come to a party as a group, leave as a group, and this is in no way me victim blaming, as women, we should be able to go home by ourselves we should be able to walk home by ourselves unfortunately we do not live in that world we never have and they just thought that they did at the time yeah the 70s and 80s were a different time and i know um we can we're a little bit more aware of things now um but circumstances still remain women go missing every day and it's important to be safe Mm -hmm. and to know what you need to do Mm -hmm. so As she's walking home, this is when someone comes out of the dark with a tire iron. She was hit in the head over 10 times. Her head cracked open. The attacker left her lying on the cold, hard ground. 
thinking she was dead. Even though her brain was exposed and she was quite literally on the brink of death, miraculously, she survives. But, unfortunately, had no memory of her attacker or the attack itself. All police had was that phone call. And I say unfortunately because some would say that's fortunate that she doesn't remember any of it. Mm -hmm. But as far as getting justice for her, it was unfortunate. One nice summer day on June 3rd, 1981, a group of teenagers were walking in a wooded area near Interstate 35E. While they were walking, one of them notices a woman's body lying face down. The teenagers take off to call the police. When police arrive, they notice she had suffered wounds to her chest, stomach, and inner thighs. She had also been strangled with a shoelace. When the body was taken to the medical examiner, he made the conclusion that the woman had been stabbed 61 times. Mm. 61. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Stabbing takes a lot of physical exertion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 61 times is... It feels personal, but... Or very frenzied. Yes, frenzied. That's, that's probably a better term for it is frenzied. But that's not the craziest part. She had been stabbed by what the medical examiner said was an ice pick. It's just a random and unusual weapon. You don't hear about that a lot. Very specific. Mm-hmm. The woman was eventually identified as 18-year-old recent high school graduate Kimberly Compton. Kimberly had recently moved from Wisconsin to Minnesota and was searching for a job that day. She gets off the bus and notices there's a diner across the street. She goes into the diner, sits at a booth, orders food, and while she's eating, she meets a man who offers to show her the sights of the city, which she accepted, and that was the last time she was seen alive. Now, they knew when police went to retrace her steps, they they figured this out because she still had the undigested contents of the food in her stomach Mm -hmm. and they found her ticket stub i think so they essentially just pieced those two pieces of information together Mm -hmm. there also wasn't a lot of physical evidence at the crime scene no sign of sexual assault either so police didn't have a lot to go off of but their first lead would come just hours later and it would come straight from the killer's mouth Police received an anonymous phone call from a man who seemed really distraught and was confessing to the murder of Kimberly. Keyword seemed. Yes. At first, police thought, this has to be a prank. Usually you don't get someone just calling and straight up confessing to murder. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they sounded remorseful. But then the person on the phone said something that immediately got police's attention. I'm going to play it for you now and see if you catch it. You find me, I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Did you catch what he said? Ice pick. He stabbed someone with an ice pick. Yes, an ice pick. He mentioned killing someone with an ice pick. That information had not been released to the public yet. And an ice pick is just random enough to where police were sure that the frantic voice on the call was, in fact, their killer. That wouldn't be the last time police heard from this caller, because he would call again, just two days later, with the promise of turning himself in. As you can probably guess, though, he never did. Or this would have been a very short episode. Mm -hmm. 
The next time he calls is on June 6th, but it's for an entirely different reason than admitting guilt. He's calling because some of the news reports in the papers about the murders were incorrect. And this is why part of me, actually a lot of me, (laughs) thinks that this whole calling and being remorseful was just an act. Agreed. Because this shows it was an ego thing for him. He was worried enough about the details of his murders in the news that I think he just got off on that attention. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make sure the details were right. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long after that that he calls again. On June 11th, police get this call. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had this tavern. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day. I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Police were actually able to trace the call this time, and they learned it was coming from a payphone. They basically hauled ass to get to this location, but he was long gone by the time police got there. He was right there and slipped through the cracks. Police decide that their best bet was to compare his voice with other 911 calls that had happened recently, hoping to get a match. And they did. However, the match was from the phone call about Karen Potak. And obviously, they never learned who that caller was. Mm Mm-hmm. So they have this killer on the loose, one who seems like part of his M.O. is taunting police with these really emotional phone calls about his attacks. But they haven't gotten much, and the clock is ticking, because he will most likely kill again. Yeah. Police decide that they need the public's help. They release a portion of one of the phone calls to the public, hoping that someone would recognize his voice. After this was released was actually when he was given the name The Weepy Voice Killer. I personally would have called him the weepy bitch killer, but that's just me. Agreed. I would, yeah, I would second that. Like, I'm sorry, you do these un, these awful, unthinkable crimes to innocent women and then call and cry about it? I mean, I'm sure police were happy with something to go off of, but it just pisses me off. Yeah. You know what you're doing, motherfucker. <laughs> there ain't no sympathy for you. Mm-mm, none to be had. Nope. We're fresh out. Fresh out of that. Yep. However... Even after releasing the audio, police still didn't have a suspect. They still didn't have much to go off of. While they are scrambling, trying to find something, anything, another body is found. On August 6, 1982, a paper boy was walking along the Mississippi River in Minneapolis when he comes across a body. That body would be identified as Barbara Simons, a 40-year-old nurse from Minneapolis She had been stabbed over a hundred times with what looked like either a Phillips head screwdriver or, as you could probably guess, an ice pick. An ice pick. Over a hundred times? Yes. Wow. Yeah. When police tried retracing Barbara's steps the previous day, they learned through witnesses that she had been at Hexagon Bar. She met a man there that asked her for a cigarette, which she gave him. He then offered to give her a ride, which she accepted. She confided in a person at the bar and said, He's cute. I hope he's nice since he's giving me a ride home. 
Unfortunately, that would be the last time Barbara was seen alive. That's so sad. I hope he's nice. Yeah. I feel like that was a little bit of her intuition, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They were able to get a description of the man who Barbara went home with from witnesses at the bar. They described him as about 40 years of age, bulky, about six foot, and 185 pounds. He had dark hair with a receding hairline and a dark mustache. He deserves that receding hairline. Absolutely. I hope it made him feel like shit. Me too. It was around this time that police received another hysterical phone call from the killer. Player emergency. Please don't talk to listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? I'm just going to... There's so many guys with a red shirt on. It's me. I killed both of them. I'm sorry. I'm never going to get to Calm down. Calm so there's a couple of things there that I want you to take notice of. One, he said, if someone's in a red shirt, it was me. The other thing is he says, I'll never make it to heaven. Police start to realize that most of his victims are wearing red. Which is the strangest MO to me. Yeah, it is strange. Red clothes? Mm-hmm. And also, they can pretty much decipher that this is also a fairly religious man. Or at least he he's, says he's he pretending is. to be. Yeah. yeah. They weren't able to trace the call this time or get any new information other than, like I said, about getting into heaven. Mm-hmm. So on top of everything else we know about the killer, we know he's religious or at least pretends to be. What do you think, Katie? Do you Does he sound remorseful to you or is he faking it just to get a rise out of police? Because this phone call for me just solidifies my belief that he's full of shit. He made sure everyone knew he was responsible for Kimberly Compton. That's what I was going to say. It just doesn't sound genuine to me. No, he, he with the phone calls, always mentioning his his previous victim, Mm -hmm. always mentioning her name. So it's like a little brag in there every single time because he wants the world to know. And then also the fact that he keeps calling after every time that he does this Mm -hmm. and then saying things like, I'm going to kill myself and... I'm going to turn myself in and all this BS. And that's very narcissistic behavior. Exactly. No, you're not. You're doing this to further the storyline for yourself. This is this is for you. This is a personal thing. It's boosting your ego. You're getting off on it. All of the disgusting things that you could be feeling is what you're feeling while you do this. You don't feel bad about it or else you wouldn't brag about your past victims every time you called. Like, because at this point, police are pretty sure we ha- they had a serial killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, very serial killer behavior. Right. Because it's not uncommon for a killer to taunt police. Right. We've seen this before. Yeah. I think what's unusual is just him sounding remorseful. Right. But I think... What am I trying to say? Like, I have a picture... Like, in my head, I have a picture of him doing this calling police hanging up the and hanging phone. up and laughing yes you that's know? what i was getting ready to say like, like he hangs up the phone he wipes away fake tears mm-hmm. and he's fine yeah he just walks and he away. just keeps he just keeps walking yeah and, and laughing you know something i just it's not genuine at all no and even if it was like i don't care or you're i take, swear you're could, taking innocent lives he could be sitting there smiling on the phone as he's saying all this stuff and just yeah. sounding sad mm-hmm. but i i think that it's it's just an ego thing for him for sure and it just makes him more interesting yeah. to the public. And that's all that it is for him. Well, p- 
police at this point get the FBI involved because, like I said, it's pretty clear to them that they have like a potential serial killer. Mm -hmm. And based on everything the police were able to piece together, the FBI comes up with an eight-person lineup. The police take this lineup to the diner where Kimberly Compton was last seen and the bar that Barbara was last seen at. And every witness they spoke to picked out the same picture. That picture was of a man named Paul Michael Stefani. That blows my mind about the FBI. There are people that are so intelligent in this world that we live in Mm -hmm. that they can make an eight-person lineup with an entire city, county, state full of people. They can get it down to eight people and have the killer in there. I mean, I think think it's fascinating when, when, you know... Um, police forces get the FBI involved and they come up with not only a description, but like down to personality traits. Yeah, personality traits. This man will be married. This man will have kids. This man will have this kind of job or he'll wear this this killer. I should say this killer because it's not always, but like this killer will do this and this killer will do that and he'll, they'll have this job. They'll be married. They'll have kids you know, drives th- this kind of car. Yeah, I th- mean, this crazy. is this is what he does when he's alone. Like, you know, it's cra- this is this is the type of family and that he like grew up that they grew up with, and it's wild to me that they can get it down to that. Yeah. And a lot of times they're correct. Yeah, they're right. I mean, they got it down to eight people. Yeah, and they had him in there. It just blows my mind. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's wild, and like that's like my dream job. Like <laughs> for me to. Just be like, yeah, this person is this way. This is what you're looking for, you know. They're going to work in an office. They always wear gray pants. Yeah, like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, about Paul Stefani. Mm. Paul Stefani was born into a Catholic family and was the youngest of 10 children. That family had not heard, like, birth control. Who is she? Mm -mm. They don't know. Mm Mm-mm. After his parents divorced, Stefani's mother remarried when he was just three years old. His stepfather was very abusive and was known to beat his stepkids and throw them down the stairs. Damn. He's he's got trauma. Definitely. There's some trauma there. He has probably... Daddy issues. Daddy issues and brain injuries. (laughs) Yeah. His stepfather was an asshole. That pretty much, you know, that much is clear. I feel bad for the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Later, after moving to St. Paul, Minnesota, Stefani would marry Beverly Leiter, and they had one daughter. The couple did end up divorcing, though, soon after, and Paul had trouble holding down different jobs. Shocking. Yeah, that doesn't shock me at all. And he did get fired from a janitor position at Malberg Manufacturing Company in 1977. And the reason why this is significant is because Karen Potak's body was found near that building. So he's familiar with the building. So his first murder, attempted murder. Right. Mm-hmm. So is needless to say, yeah, he's familiar. So, so needless to say, Paul earned the spot at the top of the suspects list. They were so sure of him that they kept surveillance outside of his apartment so they would know when he came and went. And to just observe him for a few days, because, you know, they were in kind of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. He's not tipped off that he's a suspect at this point. So it's a good time to keep an eye on him. On the night of August 21st, 1982, Paul gets into his vehicle and leaves his apartment. 
Police follow him, but lost track of him once he got into the city. Panic. Yeah, instant panic. If, <laughs> panic I, had, if I had been the police, I would have shit myself. <laughs> like, seriously? Yeah. You have this guy you think is a killer, a serial and killer. And he's going out on the town at nighttime. Yeah, like, to me, like, you know, he's probably not going to the local blockbuster to get a rom-com and some popcorn. Mm-mm. And... Yeah, like instant panic. I would have been like, shit, shit, like, I could just see me like, like I'm just going to use Doug. Like, Doug, what we fucked up. Like, <laughs> my partner, Doug, like, we fucked up. We're going to get fired. I'm going to lose my retirement. My wife's going to kill me. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't going out to his local blockbuster to get a rom-com and some popcorn. Damn. Paul was on the hunt. Paul picks up 19-year-old Denise Williams, who was a sex worker. She had been walking the streets when she got approached by Paul in his car. He asks her for services for the night, and they agree on $100. She gets into his car, and they drive off. It's not too long after Denise gets into Paul's car that she starts to feel uneasy. Instead of taking her to a parking lot or a hotel or some, like, even a residence like she was used to, he turns on a dead-end road. Denise knew in that moment she had to get out of the car. She had to get away from this man. Yes, ma'am. Before she could act on her suspicions, he stabs her 15 times with a screwdriver. Mm. While Paul was attacking her, she was able to pick up a glass bottle and hit him over the head with it. Yes. It shatters, which leaves cuts to his head and face. Like, yes, girl, that's what I'm talking about. Fuck it up. Hell yeah. Fuck it up. Denise was able to get out of the car and her screams would get the attention of a man who lived nearby. He witnesses Paul try to stab Denise again and confronts Paul. Paul threatens him with the screwdriver before getting into his car and fleeing the scene. The man calls emergency services, and then both Denise and the man identify Paul as the attacker. Paul gets home and realizes that he is bleeding profusely. So while police are talking with Denise and gearing up to arrest Paul for the attack, a 911 call comes through dispatch. The man on the other end of the 911 call says, I need an ambulance. I'm all cut up. I got beat up and I'm bleeding. I just think this is so funny because he calls police after his attacks, hysterical and distraught. And then he has to call for an ambulance, hysterical and distraught, after getting his shit rocked. And that's just... And and that's on She's a Bad Bitch. Exactly. And that's just poetic justice. It is. And that's exactly how they match up the voices. And that's just hilarious to me. The fact that he is at least trying to present himself as like boohoo crying when he makes the phone calls and then they matched it. You From know him he actually was legitimately being like, like, fucking crying. Yeah. Hell yes, Denise. Like, yes. <laughs> you are. You are that woman. <laughs> and I will reiterate, weepy bitch killer. Yes. After getting medical treatment for his wounds, police take Paul in for questioning. You want to know what he says is the reason for his wounds? He told police he was a victim of a robbery. Like, dude, no, just stop. That's not going to work. I knew it was going to be some stupid shit like that or like a bar fight or something. Yeah. But despite not having his confession, police knew that they had their guy. They start showing Paul the evidence that they had. They show him the pictures of the victims. Detective Don Brown said he got up from his seat and said, you're not going to pin those on me. And his voice immediately changed. He went to a high pitch. Right away, it struck me as the voice that I heard on their recordings. That's so gross. Mm -hmm. That gives me chills. Paul went to trial for the attack of Denise Williams and the murder of Barbara Simons, pleading not guilty on all of the charges. 
His ex-wife, sister, and a woman who was living with him at the time were all brought onto the stand, and all three confirmed that the voice on those phone calls to police were in fact Paul. Oh. Mm. Paul was found guilty and was sentenced to 18 years for the attack of Denise and 40 years for the murder of Barbara. Paul didn't say much about the attacks after his arrest. That was until his diagnosis of skin cancer, and he was told he had less than a year to live. He then decided to confess to the beating of Karen Potak, the murders of Kimberly Compton and Barbara Simons, and the stabbing of Denise Williams. But that wasn't all. No, he confessed to something else. He confessed to the drowning of Kathleen Greening. Paul hadn't even been a suspect in that case. On July 21st, 1982, Kathleen's best friend shows up to her home in Roseville, which is right outside of Minneapolis. They were to go on a vacation to Mackinac Island. When no one came to the door after she knocked, she decided to let herself in. That's when she discovered 33-year-old Kathleen dead in her bathtub. She was face up in the tub with her knees bent towards the front of the tub. Police ruled her death an accident until Paul confessed to it. Paul admitted to holding Kathleen underwater by her shoulders until she was dead. And that was only a few weeks before the murder of Barbara Simons. So Barbara, as far as we know, was his last victim. It's unclear the relationship between Kathleen and Paul. If police know, they haven't released that information to the public. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that when they looked through Kathleen's case file again, they found her address book. Paul's phone number was in that address book. Paul also never made a phone call after Kathleen's murder, which makes it the outlier. Mm -hmm. And it was a different... um way like yeah. it was a different yeah he didn't stab right Kathleen yeah maybe he didn't want to because he actually knew Kathleen mm-hmm. like he didn't want to make a phone call because he actually knew Kathleen right on a personal level there was a way for him to be linked to yeah. her and he didn't want to bring attention to her case mm-hmm. who knows but Paul ended up dying of cancer on June 12 1998 while incarcerated at Oak Park Heights prison as he, deserved yes he was 53 years old good riddance bye yeah. So did that, he never say even during during his confessions what the whole deal with him wearing red was? Not that I could find. So and weird. Thing. I think you know, and the reason, the other reason I think the phone calls were disingenuous was when he had a chance to confess, when he had a chance to plead guilty, he did not. Mm-mm. So to me, I think that makes the phone calls even creepier for me. Mm-hmm. The fact that they are disingenuous, the fact that they mean nothing, like as far as his... It's him, a complete act, him standing in a yeah. payphone, just... Or, you know, wherever. Yeah, it's just him being... He's probably, like you said earlier, he's probably just smiling while he's doing while he's that. Doing or it. Yeah. It makes it even more creepier yes. for me. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the weepy voice killer. He's gross. Very. And I'm glad, like, every victim counts. Every... every Every person's life matters, and it and it counts. But I'm so glad that he was caught before it got any worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that two women survived mm-hmm. and lived to tell the tale, and that Denise, the badass that followed she, her gut, yeah, the badass that she is, rocked his shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she followed her gut, mm-hmm. and you always should. And Absolutely. she was right, mm-hmm. and then fucking screamed her head off, probably until. Someone heard the her. guy that lived close by came. Mm-hmm. Always listen to your instinct. Mm-hmm. That gut feeling 
It's there for a reason. wrong. It is primal in us. Mm -hmm. Every single person is primal. That gut instinct is a survival instinct. It is primal and you need to listen to it. Mm -hmm. When something is not right, it is not right for a reason. Even if it's with somebody that you've known for a while. Yeah. If if one evening or something, you're just hanging out with them one-on-one and it just, you just start getting that gut feeling, go, leave. Listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and like for me, for someone who suffers from anxiety, like I can, I can admit that sometimes I feel like my anxiety messes with what I think is my intuition. Mm -hmm. And it's really just my anxiety talking, you know, but it's different. Like if my instincts are screaming at me, it literally won't let me go, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so just listen, listen to that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Any thoughts other than that? Other than what I've shared? No, no. Okay, He's a bitch. So now I want to get into what I said at the beginning of this episode. I will do a full episode on this. Mm-hmm. I will do it in August. I almost wanted Katie to do it to be like the outside looking in. But then I thought, no, it's my, you know, it's my cousin. It's my family. So I'm going to do it. Um, It'll be hard, but I'm going to do it. Um, In 1980, my cousin, Mary Jones, was with her friend, Mitzi, and they were walking home when they get pulled into the woods where they are brutally raped and left for dead. Mary died. My cousin died. And... Her friend miraculously survived. And this happened in, you know, Morristown, Tennessee. That monster that killed Mary, that man, is up for parole in August. I will, Katie and I will be there for his parole hearing. But I know we have a system in America, or at least we should, where rehabilitation is the goal. Mm -hmm. And for some crimes, I would even say most. And some people, it's And some people. I can get with that. I I work in rehabilitation, mm-hmm. you know, for substance abuse. I 100% believe in rehabilitation, but not for this. Mm-mm. It was premeditated what he did to them. And like I said, when I do my episode on this, I will get more into detail about what happened to those two girls. My cousin was 16 years old, and I firmly believe in rehabilitation until until children are involved, until premeditated murder is is involved. Um, Some people, even if they are rehabilitated for whatever reason, still deserve to rot in prison. Mm -hmm. And he's one of those people. Absolutely. And I'm not just saying that as someone who is biased. And I know I'm biased. I know I am. But I would say that for any 16-year-old victim. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, he is up for parole in August. August 24th is the parole hearing. Currently, there is a petition out to keep him in jail. Mm-hmm. I'm going to post that on our website, and I would really appreciate it if everyone would sign it. You can also write letters to the parole board, and I will also put that information in there about why you think Randy May, that is his name, why Randy May should stay in jail. And of course, I will let you all know when the episode is going to, to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I may give Katie like some, we may do the episode together. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't decided entirely. But yeah, so that's that's what I wanted to put out there. And like I said, if everyone could go sign it, I'd really appreciate it. I was unable to meet Mary because this happened in 1980. And I was born in 1993. 
but the fallout from all of that has affected my family and of course her and you know direct direct family. family a parent should just never have to bury their child for any reason but you know something as unnatural as that murder mm-hmm. so yes that'll be up there and i'd appreciate it guys i appreciate your support we appreciate your we yep. appreciate your support and next week it will be katie's episode i guess if she <laughs> can get one together at time it will be but yeah so thanks for listening guys and we will see you next week bye bye be safe We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing and our friend Avalyn Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is M3Podcast and you can find us on Facebook under the name of our podcast, which is Murder, Mayhem, and Merlot. (laughs) 